Samson, unquestionably, is one of the most compromised leaders in the Bible. Actually, he does not even know how to lead. He does not even care to lead. He treats God's commands as something that don't count for him. He's self-centered. He's conceited. He's unfocused. Everything he does in his entire lifespan, and his story runs for four chapters. It's one of the longest stories in the, in the Judges. Um, everything he does is out of self-interest. He is an insecure country bumpkin who is called to fight the Philistines, but instead tries to fit into their more elitist culture and fails miserably. So why do I want to do a sermon about him? And the answer for me is simple. Because when we study Samson, when we start to study not just Samson, but the whole context of the judges and the whole context of this era of Israel's history, we see a, a darkness that is appalling, literally appalling. But we see the grace of God reaching down below the darkness and lifting his people out of it. And I want to show you that grace through Samson. The book of Judges, well, let me back up one step here. In the Old Testament, Israel is the Lord's bride. Same as the New Testament imagery, that the church is his bride. And the book of Judges shows us, in fact, the whole Old Testament shows us Israel in, in narrative, Israel in relationship with their God. And Judges answers the question, how far, just how far would God go to rescue his bride. Title of my sermon today is The Samson You Only Thought You Knew. Probably all of us, if we've been in Sunday school, children's Sunday school especially, have gone through the whole Samson story. He's one of the heroes of the Bible. He's the one who stopped the lion. He's the one who killed all the Philistines with the jawbone of the ox. And it just goes on and on and on. But the more we study Samson, the more we realize this guy isn't heroic at all. There's one commentator that I have in my, in my books. He says, the more we learn about these guys, the less we like them. He's right on this. We don't know, really, I don't think we do, Samson. We know him as a historic character, heroic character, we think we do anyways, whose great feats of strength rescue God's people. We have a picture of him like the one here on the screen. This is from the Action Bible. It's the moment that Samson hits the lion, or the lion hits Samson and, and ends up not knowing what hit him. But look at the Samson character here. What does he look like? And particularly going back to, and we won't hit this today, but going back to Delilah's question, Oh, Samson, what's the secret of your great strength? You know, if you look at this picture, he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, well, it's easy, my dear. It's all those steroids I eat every morning. <laughs> In truth, Samson was, did not look like this. He probably looked like one of the average people of his day, one of the average men of his day. Slightly built, probably average height. Nothing about him stood out 
to give anybody indication where his strength lay. That's the whole thing of the Samson riddle and the whole reason why he's brought down. It is not something human that he did. It's his vow as a Nazarite. Today I want to look at the particular story where Samson first discovers his strength. But before I wanted, before we do that, I want to look at the period of judges in general. I want to get us, I want us to get an idea of where we are. We probably are all familiar with our early, at least, biblical history. We've got Egypt, uh, Israel in Egypt for a long time. God raises up Moses to rescue his people from the Egyptians. He brings them out in the Exodus, and then we've got you know, the, the people come out, the first generation of people, the free people, and they just can't believe that God is going to rescue them. We're just going to send us into the, Israel, into the wilderness to die. We're all going to die. Why didn't we die in Egypt? It doesn't matter if they're contradicting themselves. The Israelites wander for 40 years until the first generation dies out. Second generation comes on. When Moses dies, Gideon takes over, and he leads this second generation in a glorious conquest. They come in, they capture Canaan. Canaan has been the land that God has promised Abraham almost a thousand years before. It is the covenant land. It is the holy country, the holy land. And it means that for the Israelites. And for Joshua's generation and a generation following, they get it. They understand who brought them into the land. They understand the worship. And then we come into the period of the judges. And almost immediately, people forget their God. And history goes into a dark ages during the period of the judges. All of the judges, except for the first one, all of the judges are dark characters. Samson in particular, he's the last judge of Israel. He is a tragic character. He's just not connected with reality. Judges 13, I'm just going to cover this really briefly. Judges 13 is the birth narrative for Samson. It starts out with a man named Manoah and his wife. The wife is not named but the Lord comes to the wife, and the, the couple is barren. They cannot have children. The Lord comes to the wife and declares to her that she is going to have a child and that she must refrain from all wine and alcohol. This is a Nazarite vow. We'll explain what that is in just a minute here. And the child also is going to be under a Nazarite vow for his entire life. He is to be, and she is to be, she is to be a holy woman. He is to be a holy man. He is dedicated completely for service to the Lord. This is what the scripture says in Judges 13, 5. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. During this part of the period of, of his, Israel's history, the Philistines are the big enemy of God. It's been a couple other countries. Now it's the Philistines. It goes on into David, Saul's time and David's time as well. But what is a Nazarite? Under Jewish law, a Nazarite is a person who is set apart 
for God and his work. A man or a woman, either one, could take a vow. There's a Nazarite vow that they are taking. It's voluntary most of the time. To give part of his life, period of time, to the, to the Lord God. Here are two requirements from the Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6. First one, when, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. There's a second requirement. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is complete that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Holy here means he is entirely separated. The requirements for a Nazarite are higher than those for even the priests. He shall let the locks of his head grow long. The hair is nothing special except for in Samson's case. It's just a mark that a person is taking the Nazarite vow. For Samson, it becomes the source of his strength, although Samson doesn't know that yet. Samson is under a mandatory lifetime vow. He has been called to that. He has no choice in who he wants to be. He has no choice into what he is to be. God has called him this, uh, to this task. The last part of Judges 13 takes us into his birth, kind of a sweeping statement from his birth all the way to his adult life here. And the woman bore a son, it's a miraculous birth, and called his name Samson. And a young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. Now that sounds good right there. I mean, we love the blessing. We need God's blessing. If we look at the Old Testament, we, the idea of blessing means that God is with us. But in Samson's case, it's not this nice, gentle, benign thing. Let's see where we are here. Yep, I knew this was going to go wrong. We've got, they're raising their hand back there. In the <laughs> I'll go on. Hopefully they'll get the uh, uh, screen back up here shortly. Judges 13 says also, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtahol. The idea for stirring here is not gentle at all. It's the same word that Dan, the book of Daniel describes when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, which is actually a nightmare, and he's searching around for somebody to find it, and he's troubled by the nightmare. That troubling idea there is the word that, that the scripture uses here. God is troubling Samson. One person translated it, God, the Lord began to pound him. It's not an, not an inaccurate translation at all. We come to the next verse then, and this is where we, we see Samson's call coming out here. Samson went down to Timnah, 
This actually means two things. It has a double meaning. One, he's running from east in the Israelite territory to the west, this way in your direction, toward the Mediterranean Sea. He's going downhill. So he's geographically going down, but he's also morally going down to Timnah into Philistine territory. And in Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get me for her as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, among your people, that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson just isn't going to hear this. For whatever reasons, we don't have any details on this, but he's just not honoring his father and mother. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now, one thing we see, and we see this properly here, is that Samson is looking at his desires from his personal perspective. He's not looking at it from the broader rightness perspective. We'll come back to this in just a minute because there's even a bigger idea here in these words. Scripture goes on to say, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Who exactly is he here? Is he, does he mean Samson is seeking an opportunity from the Philistines or against the Philistines or the Lord? I think, as I have studied this and have gone over it, I think the idea here is it is the Lord who is seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. I thought it was Samson for a long time, but the more I read, the more Samson, the more I realize Samson has no plan. He's just going from one event to the next, and he's a reactor. He's not a planner. But it is the Lord who is guiding this rebellious, supposedly would-be leader. And at the time, Scripture says the, the Philistines ruled over Israel. We come to the event now that defines Samson's life. Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. What happens here? Samson and his mother are both under a Nazarite vow. They are not to be, not to imbibe of anything of grapes, and they're walking among the vineyards. I think there's a picture of compromise, I mean, further picture of compromise here. It's not just a compromise. This is compromise after compromise going on. And a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Apparently there's a break in the narrative here where his father and mother are with him at one point. When the lion comes, his father and mother are not with him. But I want to look at what's going on with the lion. All cultures have hero stories. Our culture has hero stories. We have it in the movies. And it's a great story. I love hero stories. 
But there are three elements in the hero's stories that are important. One is that um, the hero doesn't know he's a hero at the time. He's been called that. His whole life is about his heroic deeds that he's about to do, but he doesn't have a clue. He's an ordinary person in his own life. And then at some point there is a crisis where he doesn't connect with his heroic abilities. He is overtaken by his heroic abilities. This is what happens to Samson. The lion comes out, and all of a sudden, he's got great strength. The spirit rushes upon him, the Bible says, and he has this great strength, and he tears the lion to pieces. It's the discovery moment in his heroic journey. Now, the second part that a heroic journey takes, and Samson doesn't do this, Judges does not record either the second or third parts. The second part is that the hero struggles with who he is and he has to decide whether he wants to go and complete the hero's journey or whether he does not and he just wants to give up and it's not a hero's journey if the, if the person doesn't go with it and finally then he completes the journey samson does neither of the, of the last two elements here We come down to um, verse 7. Instead, he goes down to Philistia, or goes down to Timnah. And he went down and talked to the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. This is the second time that we have the mention of being right in Samson's eyes. First time Samson says it himself, go get her for me, she's right in my eyes. Second time we have this. This is not, these are not isolated incidents here. These go back to the structure of the book itself. The last five chapters of the book of Judges constitute a meandering story that literally makes no logical sense. And it results ultimately in some of the most brutal and hideous um, narrative in scripture. Uh, mass rape, gang rape, uh, monstrous revenge, and it starts with a single family and escalates to where the entire nation is infected by the spirit of revenge, and then they come back and they realize, oh, we need to correct this, and then it's overcorrection the other direction. But there are two statements that bracket this final section in Judges. And the statements are identically the same. One, after a brief introduction, introduces the, uh, or, or brings in that section, and the other one is at the very end of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So when Samson says, go get this woman for me, she is right in my eyes, she is, he is not acting alone here. He is reflecting the moral relativism of the entire nation, from the peasant on up to the rulers. It is a corrupt nation. It is one that is an absolute 
compromise. So the question becomes then, how far does God go to rescue his bride? When I started to study Samson in detail, not just Samson, but but judges in detail, but particularly Samson, I I discovered the the idea here. I came up or or realized that God does something that I like to call boundary crossing. Let me ask a question here real fast. When God, and I want you to think about this, when God saves his people, think about how redemption, think about the redemption of somebody who really needs redemption. But when God saves his people, how does he do it? Does he reach down from heaven with, say, an industrial glove on, reach into the muck and pull us out and pull the glove off and get us all cleaned off and everything? Or does he come down into the muck itself? What Samson is going to show us is that God does boundary crossing where he doesn't just reach down into the muck. He dives into the cesspool. He hops the fence, dives into the toxic waste, and brings us out. He takes us, he comes down to where we are. And I love the Old Testament for this because it shows over and over again God in relationship with his people doing what only he can do, and that is bringing, not just rescuing his people, but coming to them to rescue them. I want to look at three verses here in Samson. These will all have similar themes. Judges 14, 6, we talked about this a minute ago. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. The Spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson, and Samson kills the lion. The next one. This is a little bit later, after Samson is married. And there's the whole um, bet between the Philistines and Samson. They can't guess his riddle. And they blackmail his wife. They threaten his wife with, uh, we're going to burn your family and yourself down in your house if you don't get that out of him. Which she does, of course. She's uh, scared to death, scared for her life. Samson finds out about this. He just reacts again. But look at what happened. Look at how he reacts. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and uh, struck down 30 of their men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Here's a man out of control, but still driven by the spirit of the Lord. And finally, we have the third and final episode of the Spirit of the Lord rushing on Samson. And this is later on. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He found the jawbone, fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put it in his hand and took it, and with it struck a thousand men. 
one common element here. When the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him, he administers death. First is a lion, second time is 30 men, third time is a thousand men. If we were Hebrews reading this, we would see the discrepancy right away. There is a third requirement for a Nazarite. This is out of Numbers as well. Numbers 6 and verses 9 and 12. All the days that the Nazarite separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, he defiles his consecrated head and he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. But the previous period shall become void because his separation was defiled. Something is clear out of kilter here. Samson's power stays with him even when he comes in contact with the dead bodies, even when he makes dead bodies. He remains under his Nazarite vow and it does not void like the Lord says it should. God is breaking his own rules. Now, before you think I'm blaspheming here, let me finish. When we look at what Samson is doing, we realize something has become corrupt. And we have to ask the question, where does that corruption go? Because it has to go somewhere. It can't remain unpaid. It can't remain on the books. God cannot just dismiss corruption. The only thing that I can think of, the only way that I can see this going is that God must absorb that corruption. Now here's where we have to go back into the New Testament and apply some New Testament theology to the Old Testament. We understand this concept with the cross. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think God is doing the same thing here in Judges. He is taking on Samson's corruption. God who knows no corruption takes on Samson's corruption so that his people might be rescued from their pitiful state. That is grace. But the grace doesn't even stop there. The grace goes on from there. How does God look at the judges in general? These guys are just, they are literally a bunch of losers. They, they have just, they fail and fail and fail over and over again through this dark period of history. And by the time we reach the end of Judges, 
Israel as a nation literally is in a death whimper. It is about to die. I, I don't have time to get into what God does to rescue the nation right now, but it, I mean, Israel is about to die morally. It has decayed to that point. But let me go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. Toward the end of the chapter, the, uh, the author of Hebrews writes this. And yeah, okay, I don't have the Hebrews uh, thing here. What more shall I say then? This is, I'm reading verses 32 through 34. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Four of the people that he mentioned here are judges. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. And all four of these characters are really shadowy figures. But they have done all these things. The reason the author of Hebrews can speak so highly of them is not because they were that good, but because God is that great. And it's about grace and redemption. The book of Judges survives because of grace. It is grace that is deeper than our sin, and it is grace that God comes down in person, not just giving it to us, but taking it to us in our deepest sin.